Hello and welcome to Nearly Experts, the podcast which brings you closer to the lives and work of PhD students from around the world. As usual, I'm your host, James, and in the studio with me today, we have Tim Hewlett. Hi, Tim. Hello. Now, Tim's an astrophysicist, but he was born in a small village in Cornwall, North Pethwin? Yep. Before moving to Birmingham. Uh, he did his four-year MPhys at the University of Sheffield before coming up to St. Andrews, where he's currently in the fourth year of PhD study in the Department of Physics. Welcome to the studio, Tim. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Now, why don't we start, basics overall, what are you looking at for your PhD? Uh, so I'm looking at the uh, evolution of supermassive black holes how they grow, the processes that cause them to grow through time. Because when we look back through the universe, we find that black holes have gone from being quite small to being extremely large, very, very massive black holes of about a billion solar masses in every galaxy today, every massive galaxy. So I try and understand the processes that lead to that. Okay, so I think we need to go from there and break it down for our audience a little bit and kind of parse some of those words, because yeah. you've used some big words. <laughs> So you study black hole formation. Now, can you give everyone a reminder? What is a black hole? Yeah, sure. So so black holes are super cool, for starters. <laughs> so black holes form when you have such a dense region of, of, of matter uh, that nothing can escape a gravitational pull anymore, not even light. That's why they're black holes. So they generally form when massive stars uh, reach the final stages of their life, they run out of material in their centres to fuse. Fusion is the power source of, of stars, but they run out of fusible material, so they can't push out anymore with some, some pressure from that fusion, from the explosions essentially in the core. Gravity takes over, and they collapse into this ultra-dense state beneath what's called an event horizon, which is the area around a black hole from which nothing can escape within. Okay, so this is what happens to some stars yeah. when they reach the end of their life as a star. Yes. I'm sure people at home are saying, well, what about, what's a supernova then? Hmm. So what, when does a star form a black hole and when does it explode outwards? Do we, do we know that? We have some idea. It's actually, we don't know completely, but it seems to be if a star is more massive than about 25 times more massive than the sun, then we're pretty confident that'll form a black hole. If it's less than that, it'll form something called, it's quite likely at least, to form something called a neutron star, in a supernova, as you say. What happens in the case of a supernova is you get this really dense central region of the star, and at, at some point it becomes so massive and so dense that it collapses from being about the size of the Earth, but about the mass of, of two suns or so, it reaches a critical point where it becomes too massive and it collapses so that all your protons absorb a load of electrons and become neutrons and it collapses to the size of about Edinburgh but with that same two solar mass, two times the mass of the sun. When it does that it basically forms a, a, a hard shell of neutrons which the rest of the star will collapse into, hit against and then the shock wave when it, when it bounces off of that hard surface is what causes your supernova, that's the explosion as the shockwave out from after it collapses onto this ultra-dense star. Okay, so you're looking at stars that are bigger than these stars that cause supernovas. Yeah. And why don't these ones explode outwards again? Why, what is the black hole form? Uh, so what, what we think is it's, it's called direct collapse. 
So it's actually, it's just there is too much mass, too great a force. So the thing which keeps neutron stars from collapsing into black holes is called neutron degeneracy pressure. The words don't matter too much. It just means that your neutrons that make up that star are jiggling around really, really quickly. But there's a limit to how fast they can jiggle around. They can't jiggle faster than the speed of light. So if you have something massive enough with enough gravity, then your neutrons would have to overcome that, that universal speed limit in order to to sustain the star in, in that state. So yeah, if, if the star's massive enough, then it can't do this, and it will just keep on collapsing down and down and down until it reaches, we think, a singularity. Although there are big problems with that. People aren't comfortable with singularities. I'm not comfortable with singularities. They may, may not actually exist. Well, let's hope we get to, to that later. So your work involves the formation of you were saying super large black holes? Yeah, super massive ones. Yeah. We've been talking about mass, and we've been talking about sizes. Are they correlated in this in this instance? Yeah, they're directly correlated. The, the radius of a black hole is directly proportional to its mass. So radius is the distance from its center to its very outer, exactly, outer edge. Exactly, the event horizon. You were also talking about, uh, in your opening statement, how these black holes... The supermassive ones, you go through, t- search through time mm. to find these. What do you mean by that? That's a great question. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff like this which you kind of forget is is sort of specialist knowledge at a certain point. It's like, yeah, you just look back in time, don't you? So, first of all, we think that the universe. Well, we're pretty confident that the universe is about thirteen point seven billion years old, and we we are also extremely confident that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light especially not light. Light travels at the speed of light. So if you look at something in a, a very, very large distance away, that light from that object will have taken you a, a really, really long time to reach your telescope or your eye. So when we look really far away, we're actually seeing basically a photograph of what that object looked like billions and billions of years ago. So if you do this, and you see the supermassive black holes in some form. I'll get into how you see them in a bit, maybe. If you see that actually they have a really, really quite small mass in the distant universe, but you look at their equivalent black holes today and find that they have a really large mass, then you kind of infer that, well, somehow these objects, if they're the same kinds of objects, which, again, we're very confident they are, they've gone through quite a lot of evolution in that time. They've changed, they've grown. So I try and understand how. Okay, if we we go back, I think a kind of a good way to conceptualize this looking back in time thing. I, I think you did it very well, but we everyone's fairly comfortable with the idea of a light year being a distance, the amount of distance that light travels in a year. So for every light year that you look back, you are looking another year into the past. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, as you were saying, the further something is away, the they're millions, billions of light years away, means that you're literally looking at the past. Yeah. Uh, although actually, there's there's just one caveat to that, which is that because the the evolution of the universe as a whole, its its geometry, isn't simple. That's only true when you look at nearby things. It's actually a little bit different if you look at a distant universe. So if I look at a photon that was emitted 13 billion. Uh, years ago in time photon being a light particle a light particle yeah exactly if if i look to a a photon emitted 13 billion years ago what what i find is that it actually is about 40 billion light years away uh, just because the space during that time has inflated it's expanded and that photon has 
It's it's like it's travelled through extra space because of the expansion of space. And I suppose that we're moving as well relative to that other thing. It's not just every... Yeah. We're not at the centre with everything getting further away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's actually a really important principle in cosmology, which, well, it, it dates back to... In some ways, it dates back to Copernicus, but we've slowly sort of understood how insignificant we are. process of astrophysics has been one of realising that we are insignificant. Basically, what you're finding then is that black holes over time change in size significantly, and your PhD is looking at trying to explain why these changes occur yeah so it, it seems like it should be quite an obvious question because you think of black holes if, if if you've heard of black holes in in pop culture then you think of them as these objects that suck everything around them in so it's like well yeah of course they're going to be growing but the thing is that space is basically a vacuum now when you think about the earth rolling around the sun in its orbit i mean the earth doesn't fall into the sun right because it's it's got angular momentum uh is the reason in physics why it doesn't fall in well, it's exactly the same for black holes. If you're far away from a black hole, it's actually quite hard to fall into it. You'd have to lose a lot of your angular momentum in order to fall in. So it's it's not at all obvious why probably one black hole per galaxy has grown from the sort of, you know, 25 times the mass of the sun that we see in, in most black holes all the way up to a billion times the mass of the sun. It's not at all clear how it's managed to do that. Okay, because of this angular momentum, I mean, I guess we should talk about galaxies and, and solar systems as well, that they all have their own angular momentum. They're all moving in space yeah. as well. The middle of the Milky Way galaxy, there's a black hole, is that? Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a black hole about 4 million times the mass of the sun at the center of a Milky Way. And as the solar system and the various solar systems that are part of the Milky Way are all rotating in some way around this black hole. Yeah, so we're so we're rotating. We are orbiting around the center of the galaxy, but actually, if you do the calculations, the black hole, even though it's you know four million solar masses, it it doesn't actually matter at all gravitationally, which is why it's sort of so odd that. So there's one other facet. Sorry, I'm I'm just going to mention it now. No, go for it. Which is that the mass of these black holes, these supermassive black holes, is extremely well correlated with the mass of the galaxy that they live in, which is kind of odd because. Okay, so if, if, if I had, if I had a, a, a penny, and that represents the gravitational sphere of influence of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, then the sun on that scale would be about 20 metres away from the penny. In, it is totally insignificant in terms of the gravitational potential well of the galaxy, and yet there's some kind of coupling between the two. The masses of these two really spatially distinct objects are extremely well correlated and that's that's weird there are a number of ideas of of processes that might contribute to this the one which i work on mostly is the idea that galaxy mergers might cause the growth of black holes a galaxy merger is when two galaxies or, or more collide with each other and then they fuse into one bigger galaxy it may be that when when these galaxies collide, that that creates a kind of gravitational torque, which drives gas into the centre of the galaxy, where it can accrete onto the black hole. That's that's one idea. It's extremely hard to find evidence of this, but that's that's the main thing I work on. Yeah. How do you gather evidence about this? Can we see galaxy collisions happening right now? 
Yeah, it's it's quite nice actually that it turns out to be quite simple to explain a lot of what I do. Because really, all I actually have to do to try and look for this is I find where my accreting black holes are, and then I just look at the galaxies that they inhabit, and I ask, well, do I see signs that it's recently collided with another galaxy? And you can tell that because uh, you'll have streams of stars in, in what we call tidal tails around them. You might have dense nuclear clusters of stars, so you might find two distinct points of light within a galaxy which appear to be orbiting around one another. That would be the, the cause of your two galaxies which a while ago merged. So, in principle, it's quite a simple thing to do. It's practically quite difficult, just because these things are half a universe away. It's hard to see that far with enough resolution and detail to really tell what's going on. So when galaxies collide, what do you see? Is it like a collision between like two cars? How does this work? So, so you might think that when two galaxies collide... It's going to be mayhem, you know, you're going to have stars crashing into each other, massive explosions everywhere. It turns out that because galaxies are so massive, so huge in spatial extent, and so empty in terms of, you know, our nearest star is four light years away, and our star is, how big is it, about uh, 100 million kilometres across, I think? So the difference between those two scales is, is eight orders of magnitude, roughly. So... When galaxies collide, there's almost never any collision of stars. There's almost never any, really, really any collision of anything. <laughs> they just kind of pass through each other. What happens is that the gas, which is sitting all throughout those galaxies, because it's much more uh, evenly distributed through the galaxy than the stars are, the gas does collide a little bit. So the gas interacts. Uh, the stars and what's called dark matter just pass through unperturbed. But depending on what their sort of velocities are when they come in, depending on the environment that they sit in, they might well then loop back around and, and collide again and then have a few of these sort of pass-throughs before they, they settle into one just big, normally elliptical galaxy. Okay, so the end result of galaxies colliding is the formation of a, a new singular galaxy? Yeah, yeah. So you might start with two disk galaxies, uh, like our Milky Way, which then, when they collide with each other, about a billion years later, you'd look at that and see an elliptical galaxy, not a spiral galaxy. A billion years later? It takes a long time. That's quite the time scale. <laughs> so the theory that you're working with uh, suggests that there's a correlation between these, uh, the size of the black hole, or you've observed, rather, that there's a correlation between the size of the black hole and the size of the galaxy, mm -hmm. and theorize that these collisions, and in particular the effects that the collision has on the gas inside the galaxies, not the planets, not the stars necessarily, mm. although I imagine in these collisions that could happen. These yeah, they do get a, a little perturbed, but not, not too much. Exactly. So, I mean, planets could get accidentally sucked into stars by the effects of gravity on these forces, yeah. I suppose. And or more likely just, into just slingshotted off and out into space. You might find that it's raining comets or asteroids or something. but you Or planets. Or planets, yeah. You good, know, good. Jupiter might come crashing down. When these events occur, the gas gets perturbed in such a way so as to push them into the influence, the gravitational pull of the uh, black hole in a way that the angular mo momentum means that the gas can no longer escape. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it gets rid of that angular momentum, just like, you know, if you throw two objects at each other and they meet in the middle, then they'll just fall to the floor in the middle. 
if they've, if you've cancelled out the momenta. So yeah, it can allow gas to fall towards the centre. All right, and that's the reason you think for the increase in size of black holes over time. I think that's that's probably one mechanism by which they do that. I think it's probably more complicated than. I don't think there's a single mechanism that'll explain everything. It's messier and more complicated than that. But this this might well be an important one, yeah. Okay, okay, and, and that's the main focus of your PhD and your research. Yeah, yeah. That's All right, good. Thing. So I want to move on to how you're observing these things happen. I don't imagine that you're sitting up late at night with a telescope. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not. So so what do you do then? What's your process for looking at these uh, events? So so one thing which I, I didn't actually touch on yet, which I probably should have done, uh, is, is how the hell we see black holes at all. The clue is in the name that it should be quite hard. What, what happens with these supermassive black holes is that when gas does fall towards them, when it, when it gets close to the black hole, it, it really rapidly converts its sort of gravitational potential energy into a kinetic energy. And when it does that and it interacts with other gas which is falling near to it, that gas gets, gets extremely hot, it falls into what's called an accretion disk around the black hole, so just, just a disk of gas, uh, which is extremely hot, and that gas actually radiates more luminously with a higher luminosity than almost anything else in the universe. So when, when black holes accrete at fast accretion rates, they become some of the most luminous objects in the universe, brighter than entire galaxies. And that's outside of the event horizon so that light can still escape. The gravity's exactly. not strong enough yet to suck all that light back in. Exactly. Once it gets too close to the black hole, you don't see anything. But when it's, when it's you know, within about a light year of the black hole. It'll be in this accretion disk and it'll be radiating really, really luminously. So is that why they get the name black holes? Because they've got this luminous kind of disk around them and then there is this black hole in the middle. We didn't actually know black holes existed for sure when they were named. They're predicted within Einstein's theory of general relativity to exist. When people realized that this was a, a prediction of general relativity, they thought, no, that's too weird. There's no way this actually exists. This is just a quirk of mathematics. But then we went out and found them. We started seeing objects in the sky which looked like it, the only possible explanation for it was that it was a black hole with stuff falling into it, and that the stuff falling into it was, a cre- was emitting a lot of light. So the first, the first black holes which were seen were called X-ray binaries, where basically uh, you have a binary star system, uh, so two stars orbiting each other. One of them, the more massive of the two, if it's massive enough, can collapse to become a black hole. But the other star doesn't really care, it just continues orbiting around this black hole. But when that other star gets to a certain stage in its evolution, it inflates to something called a red giant. Now when it gets to its red giant phase, some of the material from the outer layers of that star can begin being siphoned off onto this black hole. You can kind of see material being stripped off one star and then orbiting around some unseen object. It's extremely hot, it's, it's extremely luminous, it, it emits a lot of X-rays, which is why they're called X-ray binaries. But the fact that you can't see its, its partner star, you can just see the effects of stuff falling towards it, was really a strong indicator that this was a black hole. Okay, so general relativity predicted the existence of black holes, and the earliest ones that were, which were found were these binary systems where two stars in a system, one star had formed a black hole upon collapsing, and the other one being, I imagine, slightly less massive. Yeah. 
had blown up to a red giant, which is another type of large star towards the middle to end of its life. Uh, pretty late in its life. Pretty yeah. late in its life. The last ten percent of its life, also. Okay, so towards the end of its life, and that this binary system still existed between the two objects, but we couldn't see the other object, despite the fact that we could see a radiant disk around it of material that was being sucked into this, the gravitational pull of this invisible exactly. object. So that that really forced people to. I think that was back in the nineteen seventies. And it really forced people to say, damn, okay, maybe maybe black holes do exist. That's ridiculous, but fine. Which made people could confront the possibility that, you know, singularities might exist in the universe, that these these objects were, you know, they're extremely exotic. All, all of our understanding of physics really breaks down when you get close to a black hole. It forced people to accept that that, that was true. And, you know, we, we might need to, to update or change a lot of our theories, if in, that's the case. In the 1970s. Yeah, they realised that in the 1970s, and, and we, we still haven't figured out what's going on. Uh, we're getting closer, but we, we haven't figured out a lot of physics yet. <laughs> no, I, I promise we'll get back to how you see these things, but you've this word's come up a couple of times. You've used the term singularity. Hmm. Now, what does that mean to you, uh, as an astrophysicist? A, a singularity is, is a kind of... It's a weird phenomenon, because first I'll describe what it is, and then I'll say why it's weird. So it's the notion that it's basically an infinitely dense single point. So a singularity is something that really doesn't have size, but it, it has any amount of mass. Now this is, this is extremely bizarre for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, because within... Uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, if you have an infinitely dense point, it should exert an infinite gravitational pull, and it doesn't. So there's something kind of wrong going on there. So we know these things, we think these things exist, and they don't obey that law? Is we, that what you're saying? The solution for what a black hole is, from, from everything that we know about physics, the solution is that it just collapses underneath the event horizon. We don't know of any force to stop it collapsing. So we think that it just keeps on collapsing and collapsing and collapsing until it reaches the central point where all the mass just builds up in that central region of a black hole, this, 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 this infinitesimally small point, the singularity. But this, this doesn't seem reasonable. Okay, and so, so at the center of each black hole, supposedly there is this singularity, this single mm. point, which has no size and infinite mass and therefore should have infinite gravitational force infinite density yes infinite density sorry and yet it doesn't have the same gravitational force that we think it ought to yeah well well yeah well i mean black holes don't exert infinite gravitational force uh so there's a couple of sort of possibilities as to what might be going on first of all there might be some force that we're not aware of which stops the singularity from forming that that basically creates a new kind of pressure on the interior uh, so you can avoid getting a singularity like that. And there, there are some models which, which may work, which suggests that might be the case. The second is that general relativity isn't actually the correct theory. That's a really hot topic of, of research. Some people think that's quite likely. It, it has worked phenomenally well in every single test that we've been able to throw at it. But you can't test what's underneath the event horizon of a black hole. You can't test the most extreme areas of physics because it's a black hole. You can't, you can't get in and then come back and tell people what you've seen. You'd have to travel faster than light to be able to do that. Um, so it's kind of a mystery still. All right, so back to then uh, the point that we were at, uh, which was talking about how you see these things. Mm. 
And we worked out that you can see black holes because of the gases around it reaching such a, a high heat due to, I imagine, friction with the other gas particles yep. around it that you see uh, a disk of light surrounding an invisible event horizon, black yep. hole. That's one way, yeah. That's one way. But how do you see that? Are you, you're you not, as we say, looking up at the sky with a telescope. You would use telescopes to see it, absolutely. The data I've worked with is mostly... So I've worked with Hubble Space Telescope data. I've, I've used data from robotic telescopes on mountaintops. Um, and, and some people do actually go and, and use the telescopes directly and travel to the telescopes and then point them. But it's not like an old-fashioned telescope. You don't have an eyepiece or anything like that. You have a, you have a CCD chip, it's called. Uh, just like you'd have in your phone, which just records the photons that land on it. So, yeah, you'd, you'd, just, you'd point your telescope where you think your black hole is collect the light and then and then read off the image but your data is using uh images that have already been taken is yeah. that right yeah i don't get to go up to the hubble space telescope so you look at what i imagine are thousands if not tens of thousands of these images that have been captured over years yeah over years yeah so over the last few years and i imagine you run a, a a computer program you're not doing this manually looking for particular formations well i mean one of the ways that we do this actually is still just just looking at them with our eyes looking at the images to try and see what's going on the way that you can tell that it's it's an accreting black hole and not something else is from its spectrum generally that's that's the normal way of doing it. what do you mean by spectrum so spectrum is is just like when you're in primary school and you shine a light through a a prism a glass prism and it splits out into the colors of a rainbow a spectrum is exactly the same thing it's just slightly higher tech so you put the light from some astrophysical source through a kind of prism it separates it out into all the different um into all the different wavelengths of light. And accreting black holes have particular distinctive characteristics in that spectrum, which you can look out and identify them with. Okay, and I imagine rather than just using visible light, you're using the full spectrum of electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, so so you, you can do it in a lot of different ways now, actually. Uh, the, way, the most common way probably of doing it is with X-rays. Uh, X-rays are quite hard to form. X-rays have a really high energy. Uh, so you need really extreme areas of, of the universe to get X-rays to form. Around black holes, you get a lot of X-rays. So if you find a source which is which is emitting millions of times more light than the sun in X-rays, well, that's a black hole. Okay, and at this stage of your research, what findings have you come up with? What is your research uh, contributing to um, the study of black holes? Yeah, that's a question which I need to ask myself a lot of now that I'm coming to write my thesis. First of all, something that we found was that these galaxy mergers, which I talked about earlier, are actually more important at high redshift. So that means in the early universe, galaxy mergers seem to be more important to the growth of supermassive black holes than at the present day, uh, which was a bit unexpected. There's, there's a few ways of trying to interpret that, but that was quite an interesting result. Um, it suggests that that the ways and the reasons why black holes grow in the universe is changing over time, which isn't obvious. I'm trying to sort of understand that by using simulations at the moment to explain, you know, what what have we seen and what might it mean. So it it, it could just be that actually in the earlier universe, your universe is much smaller, your galaxies are much more numerous, you have lots more galaxies because they've had less time to grow. 
So you get lots of little galaxies, which over time they collide with each other and they make fewer larger galaxies. So it might just be that in the early universe you have lots more galaxy mergers, and so even if they're similarly as significant today, in terms of if they're, if they're as efficient as today at triggering black hole, uh, black hole growth, it's possible it's just that's something you can see in the early universe, but it's really hard to pick out today because other processes dominate now where mergers are less common. But it's not entirely clear. Well, I imagine the density of the universe back 10 billion years ago was much higher than it is now. Yeah, in, in, a, in a sense, yes. In terms of there wasn't as much space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was about the same amount of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuff should be conserved. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so that would, that would make sense that as um, matter is dispersed, there's less matter, when these, even when these collisions happen, that go into the black holes. And yeah. fewer collisions as well. Yeah, so so one thing is that the yeah, the gas density of the universe has decreased quite a lot through time just because a lot of gas has been locked up in stars. So the more stars you form, the less gas you have wandering about in space. So yeah, it becomes harder to feed your black holes, even while your, your galaxy mergers are getting less common. On that note, I think it's about time to move on to the second half of our podcast and talk about how a boy from small town Cornwall got into astrophysics. Are you ready to... Hop on that train? Yeah, sure. All right, so when did you start becoming interested in physics? I think I was 13 or 14, really. I'd been quite into the, into the arts before that. I, kinda, I wanted to be an actor when I was 12 or so. I'd been in some theatre productions, and I really enjoyed that. So, you know, I was just going from there, really. It was actually... I, I got into Doctor Who when I was, like, 13 or 14, and some family members brought me some sort of, you know, science books, the science of Doctor Who, or, or you know, it started stepping up in complexity after I read those. And that, that really just opened my imagination. I, I just found that really, really interesting, and some of the concepts that I was coming across just blew my little brain. Okay, and does that mean that from the word go you were looking at astrophysics? Astrophysics was... was where to me the the sort of big questions in physics lay I think that's partly just because you try and think of you know when you're 14 or so you try and think of the scale of the universe and it just it's incomprehensible and there's something incredible about something so incomprehensible it's just it's fascinating because it's impossible for me to understand so yeah actually I I, I think I I was planning on on doing astrophysics from the age of about 15 I, I remember saying to somebody that I wanted to do astrophysics at university when I was 15, which seems mad now. How did you find high school physics then when you're forced to do everything but astrophysics generally? Yeah, high school physics was quite boring, I think. But, you know, if you persevere, there are are good bits to it down the line. Uh, I can very much understand why people don't enjoy science in school. Although it's, you know, it's not terrible. But it's, I would prefer to see more of a sort of big questions asked, even if you don't get resolutions to them. I think the questions are more important than the answers. You should be introduced to that in school because it's, it's the striving to understand the questions that's going to make you understand science anyway. Who cares about the swing of a pendulum if it's not in some kind of interesting context? You're never going to care about that. It's yeah. the way that that relates to everything else in the universe that makes it interesting. I mean, there's something to be said for having a grasp of the basics first. <laughs> yeah, but, but you need motivation for the basics, right? It's true. So no one's expecting, I don't, I don't expect them to teach cosmology in schools, but if you, if you tell someone, you know, the universe might be infinite, just think about just sit and think about that for a couple of minutes. It looks like it's infinite. How can that not interest you? 
Just just think about that. It's madness. It's brilliant. So you kind of persevered through high school <laughs> physics. Yeah. I had good teachers too. I was really lucky with my teachers, actually. Some of them were really engaging and really really good for my development. So That was at high school in Birmingham? Yeah, I remember one of one of my teachers sort of standing on a table and singing a song about physics or something like that. He, he was brilliant. He, tr- he did good. his best to make boring stuff interesting. And, I mean, how did your family react to this declaration of a 15-year-old saying, I want to be an astrophysicist? Oh, my mum would say, oh, you have to be very good at maths. I think maths always sort of daunted my mum. I'm I'm not I'm not astonishingly good at maths. I'm I'm all, I'm pretty good at maths, but I don't I don't think you necessarily have to be that good at maths. Actually, I think that's a misnomer. So you can learn maths to the level required and be a physicist. You don't have to be good at maths and then take on physics. Yeah, maths maths is something that if you can get past the sort of block with maths, it it, it can just be it's a tool like anything else, and you can learn to use a tool. Maths has become so integral to physics because it's been so powerful as a technique for doing physics. I think there's a lot to be said for just thinking more heuristically about problems in in physics without trying to think mathematically. I think that just through sort of conceptualizing what's going on, you can you can gain a lot of insight, which doesn't require maths. If you want to build a model, if you want to do physics, then then you'll probably need maths as a tool at some point at least. But but it's not necessarily necessary for understanding physics. Good. And so that was your mum. What did your dad say? Uh, really never very much at all, actually. <laughs> I think he was probably quite quite intrigued. He, my dad's a theologian, so we certainly had a lot of interesting conversations growing up. He's a minister and a theologian. I, I decided I was an atheist when I was about 12 or so, which actually they were pretty supportive of. They were very quite happy with it, but would have a lot of long interesting sort of existentialist debates the virtues of of empiricism versus other forms of of thinking but i I, you know i I think now he's he's really interested in what i do and we we still have really good discussions so i I think i think they were very supportive of, of that i was lucky in that again good so from high school in birmingham we had some unusual teachers that encouraged you along the way through the basics you went on to do an an m phys at Sheffield? Yeah. So that's a four-year program. Yeah. And what, is it just a Master's of Physics? That seems like an unusually specific degree. <laughs> yeah, so so there's the sort of normal three-year bachelor period, and then the, the fourth year is just, you get your Master's out of it, but it's, it's very much a continuation of what you've done before. Unlike postgraduate Master's courses where it'll be self-contained, uh, yeah, it, it just continues on from your Bachelor's, so that's quite useful in some ways. Did you get a BSc as well, or is it just the MPhys? I think it's just the MPhys, actually, yeah. So I think if you do a postgraduate master's, you get an MSci. Uh, so then you get a BSc and MSci. I think people probably know when you say you got a, an MPhys. At least in the UK, people would have an idea that that means that you did an integrated master's course. So it's qu- they're quite common, I think, MPhys okay. degrees. So you're saying that's just like the basic first three years combination of subjects... But still mostly physics. Are you able to go straight into astrophysics or do you still have to take a range of subjects at that early stage? So for my degree, sorry, I should have said in my, in my degree, I was doing physics and astrophysics for the whole time. So 
most of my course mates just did a straight physics degree and within that they could choose some astrophysics modules if they wanted. Mine was more restrictive because I knew that I wanted to be doing the astrophysics so I kind of did all of the astrophysics modules as I went along. In the in the fourth year, in the final year, yeah, it, it specialised even more, so you, you did really quite niche bits of astrophysics and a big astrophysics project. Yeah, I, I did a reduced amount of the sort of normal core physics. I did, did the sort of stuff that you needed, certainly, but I, I specialised quite early on, in a sense. Okay, okay. And in that fourth year, was there a, a research project mm. or something like that? What was your research project? So it was it was a similar, similar kind of... Uh, vein of research to what I'm still doing now but I was looking at, at something called feedback so when your when your black holes are accreting like I said they're extremely luminous that that really high luminosity the really high energy is involved might then have a, an impact on the galaxy itself so this might be another way of explaining why black hole masses are so well correlated with the masses of the galaxies they reside in is if some of the energy produced when when gas falls into the black hole, if some of that couples to the gas in in the rest of the galaxy, it might be able to impart a little bit of momentum. You know, photons are, are flying out from the black hole, they ping off a bit of dust or a bit of gas, and that kicks that bit of gas a little bit faster away from the centre. And if you add up enough of those little kicks well, then you might be able to, to expel gas from the galaxy altogether. And that, in turn, if you've got no gas in the galaxy, you can't form any stars. So that might be a way that black holes are regulating the galaxies that they exist within and controlling their star formation rates. That was your master's research program? Yeah, I looked to see if there was any evidence of, of correlation between the winds that we were detecting coming from the centres of these galaxies presumably from the, the central accreting black hole, and the, the star-forming properties of the galaxies that they were in. And then how did you end up up here in St. Andrews? Uh, well, I, I applied for quite a lot of PhDs. My, my supervisor here, well, I, I, you know, I sent emails to, to each of the, the people who I was interested in working with before applying through whatever scheme there was to apply through. I don't even remember anymore. My supervisor, Carolyn, was one of the few people who actually responded to my emails with a great deal of interest in, in me as well as uh, my interest in her. So that was really encouraging, really, really nice, actually. So I thought, yeah, you know what, St. Andrews is a great university. This is clearly going to be a really good supervisor. Um, I'll come here. All right. So you had offers from these other places yet? or uh, I, Yeah, I got a few offers from, from a few places, but ultimately St. Andrews was my top of my list, mostly because of the supervisor. Great, and now you're here, Yeah, which I think only leaves us with what we do at the end of every podcast, which is our final five questions. Okay. Now, for people who haven't been listening, and Tim, who hasn't listened yet, <laughs> uh, at the end of each podcast, I go through the same five questions with all my guests, just to get a little insight into their own PhD experience. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Question one, here it is. What has been the biggest challenge of your PhD experience so far? I think probably the biggest challenge has, has been when stuff just doesn't work for months and months on end. It can be quite hard not to just feel miserable and demotivated. I, I, I kind of think, so I think the best way that I found out of that, at least, was just not to be too hemmed in by whatever you're doing at the time. So I think if I were to advise somebody else who was, who was feeling demotivated and, and kind of rubbish, as you will, throughout any anyone who does a phd at some point is likely to feel miserable and like they're rubbish at what they're doing just read the things that interest you doesn't have to be related to your work doesn't have to be you know with any particular goal in mind just if there's some kind of 
thing that you're passionate about, which isn't your work, go and learn about it. Because you might find that it, it comes back to you in really good ways. And you might not, but it'll still be fun. <laughs> you're here to learn. Don't don't get too caught up in the little details. Right, I think that's really good advice and kind of steps on the toes of our next question, which is <laughs> what piece of advice would you give yourself about PhD life if you could go back to your first day? I think I might just be saying this because I'm about to start uh, writing my thesis and because I just gave a good answer a second ago, but probably would have been to, to make better notes of what I've been doing to write as I go along. I'm now looking at writing essentially a book in like three months from scratch, uh, which is going to be tricky. So maybe, maybe yeah, to have made better notes of the things I read and the work that I've done as I went along. All right, question number three. Ideal scenario, what do you want to get from your PhD? A doctorate. I, I'm, I'm looking now, well, I'm, I'm starting to apply for postdocs now. So in part, I, I would like to feel confident that I'm able to go and do independent research afterwards. But I think, I think longer term, actually, I'd really like to be able to explain and write down ideas so that they're accessible for people. So I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward, in a way, to, to this horrible period of writing coming up. Because, you know, someday I, I think it would be amazing to be able to write a book or something and try and explain these really cool, weird ideas in a more accessible way. I'm not sure I've done the best yet today, but... Okay, question number four and kind of the other side of this question is what impact do you want your PhD thesis to have? It's odd because I don't really expect my thesis to have much impact uh, on anyone else. I, I don't expect many people to read my thesis. So I guess what actually I would hope for it more realistically would be that it helps me to learn the process of writing such a huge piece of work. So it's really just a stepping stone towards becoming better at, at doing the things that I want to do. Yeah. Time for our final question. Question five. If you had never studied astrophysics, what do you think you'd be doing right now? Um, I, I think it's quite likely that I'd be doing philosophy, I, uh, particularly my influence from my dad, you know, chatting about theology and philosophy, having those debates as I grew up, definitely influenced the way that I think. Philosophy is one of the things that I did quite a lot of reading of when I got sick of my PhD at times. And there are ideas within it, again, which are, which are similarly sort of mind-blowing as in astrophysics. So I think probably philosophy. There are a few other answers that I could, could give as well. Stuff like neuroscience would be super cool as well. Uh, yeah, so I think maybe philosophy. All right, thanks, Tim. That's the end of our five questions and the end of our podcast for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, of course, of course. So that's it for another episode of Nearly Experts. Remember, if you want to keep up with our progress and how things are going, you can like us on Facebook, just at Nearly Experts, or follow us on Twitter. And yeah, that's it. Thank you very much for joining us at home. I hope you hear from me soon. Bye. Bye. Just realized people can't see my hands. Oh.